0: Turn, if you would, to the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew. Two weeks ago, we talked about Peter and his discussion with Jesus about who Jesus is, was, and we will have more discussion about that question today. Jesus, uh, Jesus asked the apostles who do the people say that I am? And they said, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the group and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, right answer, good answer. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God revealed it to you. And we had a long discussion about what that meant because Jesus then said, upon this rock, this rock of this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then immediately Jesus starts telling them that he's going to go down to Jerusalem, he's going to go down to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill him. They're going to beat him and then they're going to kill him. And Peter says, heck no, that's not going to happen to you. I will not let that happen because they had this different idea in their head about who the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to accomplish, and getting killed by the religious leaders was not high on the list. And Jesus turned to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about the things of God. You are thinking about the things of men. And then in last week's lesson we picked up with a discussion about what it means to follow Jesus, starting in verse 24. We'll just read what we did last week and then pick up from there. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Number one, deny your own will. What is it that I want to accomplish? We set that aside to do what God would have us to do. And in our modern day, that's exceptionally unpopular and exceptionally difficult. We live in a very self-centered age. You watch every commercial on TV. You talk to people, and it's, what is in this for me? What do I deserve? What do I need, want, desire right now? And God says, take all that and set it aside. When they asked Jesus why he did what he did, what did he say? My will is to do the will of the one who sent me. And that is what Jesus calls us to do also. Deny yourself, take up your cross, take up the instrument of your death. You know, I mentioned last week, we have this idea that, you know, a cross is a piece of jewelry. They're real nice, they're pretty stained glass windows in churches. That wouldn't have meant anything to the disciples at this point. The cross was an instrument of death and torture that the Romans had inflicted upon the people. And Jesus says, take up the instrument of your death and follow me. Walk in the path that I've shown you to walk in. Okay, simple enough. Hmm. I am going to take my soul, and I'm going to sell it. And the question is, what does it mean if I gained the whole world? Everything I could possibly desire in this world, what if I had all of it? But in the process, I lost my eternal soul. Would it be worth it? And the answer in the scripture is obviously no. This is one of those rhetorical questions. Of course it's a stupid bargain. Don't do it. Yet in our world today, how many people are willing to barter their soul for something much cheaper than everything? We sell our souls by giving our desires the leeway in our life to do what we want to do and not what God would have us to do? What does it profit a man? Because there's going to come a time, Jesus says, where I'm going to return and I'm going to repay everyone according to their deeds. What did you do? Did you or did you not deny yourself, take up your cross, follow after me? And then the rewards will be given to you. Truly, truly, verse 28, this is where we'll pick up today. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's got 12 guys standing around him. There may have been some extras, but we'll just talk about the 12. He has 12 guys standing in front of him, and he looks at them, and he says, some of you are going to see the glory of the kingdom. What does that mean? What are they going to see? I would like the answer, the disciples would like the answer, to be the second coming. Okay? Here I am, and I'm hearing all this really bad stuff about Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill him oh, he's going to be resurrected too, but I have no idea what that means, right? That sounds bad. But the Son of Man being revealed in all of his glory, that sounds really good. Him coming into Jerusalem, him taking out his sword and killing all the Romans, that sounds really, really good. And he's telling them, some of you, not all of you, some of you are going to see that happen. There's a problem with that interpretation. It didn't happen. Every one of these disciples is going to die. So that's probably not the answer. Even though that's the answer they would really want to see. The answer that we would really want to see. So if that's not the answer, what is the answer? Well, another possible answer is... The coming of the church age. Jesus is going to be crucified. Three days later, he is going to be raised from the dead. Forty days later, he is going to ascend into heaven. Then the disciples are going to get together with a bunch of other people, and the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon them. And they're going to go out and preach in the streets of Jerusalem, and thousands are going to be saved. It's a miraculous event, because they're going to be speaking in whatever their native language was, and that person from Ethiopia is going to hear it in Ethiopian, or whatever they spoke in Ethiopian. That Roman is going to hear it in Latin. That person from Persia is going to hear it in Persian. It is a miraculous event, and people are going to go, these are just ignorant fishermen, and look what they're doing. And they're going to go and respond to the gospel, and the church is going to grow in a huge way, and the kingdom is going to be ushered in. Maybe that's what this is talking about. And then later on, give it another 30 years or so, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, All of Jerusalem is going to be leveled by the Romans. And there's finally going to be this break between the Jews and the Christians. And they're going to come apart. Because for the beginning of the church, the Jews who became Christians remained Jews and Christians kind of simultaneously. And finally the Jews said, no, you can't do that. And there was this final break. And the kingdom of the church is separated. Maybe that's what this is talking about. It's a good answer. I like it. But I think there's more to it than that. What does it mean when Jesus tells them, some of you are going to see the Son of God in all of his glory? What does it mean? Let's keep going. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves." Okay. We're still probably in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. There are a couple of mountains there that people say, ah, it's either that one or it's that one, so I won't pick one. And he says, okay, you disciples, the rest of you stay here. I'm gonna take three of you, and we're gonna go up on the mountain and have a little time alone. Now, he's going to do this later on the night that he is arrested. He's going to take Peter and James and John with him, and they're going to go up there, and they're going to pray. They're going to have a prayer meeting. Now, the Luke passage tells us that Jesus and the three of them went up there, and the three of them were drowsy. It doesn't really say they fell asleep, but you get the impression they were real close to being asleep. Okay, so just like we'll see later in the garden when Jesus is arrested, Jesus goes up and he takes the three with him, his inner circle, his inner circle of people who like to sleep when they're with him. (laughs) Go figure. Why did he take three people with him? The Old Testament makes it very clear that when somebody is charged with a crime, you have to have two or three witnesses to verify the event. So if Jesus is going to do something miraculous and we need a witness, we need at least two, preferably three, to see what's going to happen. So he takes Peter, James, and John up on the hill. The mountain. Some speculation that it's nighttime because the disciples are sleepy. Personally, after a long hike up the mountain, I'd fall asleep in the middle of the day. But that's speculation. And he, verse 2, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses... And Elijah talking with him so you're up on the mountain you're praying Jesus is over here you're over here and all of a sudden the brightest light you have ever seen ever anywhere is standing before you and you look over and there is Jesus Where, what, what's happening here? Verse 28 of chapter 16. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming, coming in his kingdom. What Jesus is doing for them is he's giving them a picture of who he really is. Please. Well, that's what it would be called in the Old Testament. We ought to talk about that, shouldn't we? Her question is, is that the Shekinah glory? What does that mean? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. In fact, we're told here that two Old Testament guys show up. Moses and Elijah. You remember the sermon a while back, right? Elijah, Elisha. J becomes four S. Elijah. Moses brings the people out of Israel. And it says that the glory of God showed them the way. The Shekinah glory. During the daylight hours, it was this cloud. Follow the cloud and they would go the right direction. And if the cloud moved, they moved. If the clouds stayed in place, they stayed in place. And at night, this cloud was a pillar of fire. Now eventually, Moses was invited to come spend some time with Jesus. Excuse me, with God. Spend some time with God. So he goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. You know this discussion, right? And an odd thing happens. He comes up there, and he isn't allowed to see God, but he sees his glory. And when Moses comes back down, the people are terrified of him. Why? Because he glows in the dark. In fact, he glows in the daytime. His face is glowing, and the people are scared. So Moses takes a veil and puts it over his head so the people won't be scared of him. Now, where did that glow come from? It came from being in the presence of God. But like the moon today, the moon generates no light. I had this discussion with one of my children just a couple of weeks ago. The moon generates no light. Then how do you see it? Last night I was out walking, a full moon, lots of light. Where did that come from? It's a reflection of the sun off the surface of the moon to our eyeballs and we see it. That's what Moses was getting, the reflection. The people were seeing the reflection of God off of Moses and it scared them. Guess what? That's not what is happening to Jesus. Jesus is not a reflection. He is light. Go back to John chapter 1. The light came into the world and the darkness hated him. That's a whole different discussion. So Moses, Moses every time he goes and spends time with God, he comes back and his face is glowing. And he puts on his veil. Now, in Corinthians, we're told a little secret. And that is the glow faded. But he kept putting on the veil because he didn't want the people to know that the glory was fading. Jesus has nothing fading. He is transfigured. It's an interesting word, transfigured. We call this the transfiguration. The word is actually where we get our word metamorphosis. Things change from one thing to another. This is a story that has occurred throughout history and a lot of different pieces of literature. You can read Kafka about his metamorphosis, where the first sentence is, one day I woke up and I was a giant bug. The most bizarre book I, I... that's the first sentence, and it goes downhill from there. <laughs> this idea of changing from something to something else. In fact, this is the exact same word that is used in Romans chapter 12, you know, where it says in the first two verses, don't be conformed to this, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed. Changed from one thing to another. What are we supposed to be changed to? What is it talking about in Romans? Us being changed to reflect Christ. What was Christ changed to? The interesting thing that we need to remember is Christ in this transfiguration was not being changed to something that he wasn't what he's really what is really happening is he's being unchanged is that a word it is now, it is now. i just made it up <laughs> we had a discussion last week and the week before about the nature of Christ that he is all god and all man all human that the God nature took on the form of man being born in a manger and living his life. He lowered, he gave up his divine, he didn't give them up, he set them aside, his divine attributes, and he became human. What the disciples are seeing is not his divine nature being added back to it. It's the human nature being opened up so you can see who he truly is. Okay, Peter, James, John, you want to see what I can really do? Voila, here I am in the glory. Wow. And not only is he being transformed, he has, as I mentioned earlier, two friends with him, Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, and he's having a conversation with them. Luke gives us just a hint of what that conversation was when it says he's talking to them about going down to Jerusalem and what is going to happen. You know, there are some conversations that are not recorded in the Scripture that you really wish were. You know, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus talking about how he is seen in the Old Testament, wouldn't you love to have a CD of that lesson? Here's another one. Here is Jesus with Moses and Elijah the Law and the Prophets. And Jesus is explaining to them what's going to happen. Why does he need to explain it to them? Where have they been? Heaven? Probably. But they probably didn't know. You're Moses. You're dragging this rebellious people out of the nation, out of Egypt, into the Promised Land. And that's what they are. They're a rebellious people. You're having to drag them every step of the way. And God is telling you what to do. He says, we need some sacrifices. You know, when you leave Egypt, I need you to kill a lamb. I need you to take the blood. And I need to put it on the doorpost of the house. And when I see that, when I see that, I am going to pass over that house. And Moses goes, okay, God said to do it. I'm going to do it. Tell the people to do it. They do it. And it works. Now you're sitting there talking with Jesus. And Jesus goes, Moses, remember that blood? Let me tell you what that blood symbolized. That's me. I'm going to be that lamb. And Moses goes, wow, that's cool. And then Moses starts taking them out of the land of Egypt. And there is this cloud. There is this pillar of fire. And there is this bizarre analogy of this rock leading them. Moses, guess what? I was that rock. I was that guy leading you. Wow. His brain starts exploding. You know all those sacrifices? Yeah, that's me. You know that tabernacle that I gave you the detailed plans about how to do? That's me. Remember the priest that I gave you very detailed instructions on what the priest could and couldn't do? That's me. And Moses goes, wow, that's cool. Okay, maybe he didn't use that word. He was explaining to Moses what all of that stuff that Moses had seen and done and heard was really about. Elijah! Remember all that prophecy? All those promises? All that struggle you had with the Baal worshipers and the promise of better and more? I'm the fulfillment of all that. Elijah is not just the person Elijah. He is the stand-in for all the prophets of Israel. He is the picture of the prophets. And you had prophet after prophet after prophet say, yeah, there's a guy coming, the Messiah. He is going to do great stuff. But not only is he going to do great stuff, he is going to suffer And he's going to pay the penalty for our sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And Jesus turns to Elijah and said, guess what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And Elijah goes, wow, this is cool. So we have Peter, James, John, three witnesses to bear witness that they see the event. And we have two witnesses of who Jesus is. We have Moses and Elijah. Maybe we need a third. And we're going to get to that one in just a moment. Because God himself is going to bear witness of who Jesus is. But before we get there, Peter... In his normal state of start talking and then think later about what you're doing, jumps right in and adds to the conversation. And Peter said to Jesus, "Lord, it is good that we are here." <laughs> Duh? <laughs> "If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." I'm going to build you, the Son of God, the creator of all the universe, the person who can do anything that he wants to do, I'm going to build you a pop-up tent. (laughs) And not only that, I'm going to build one for Moses who died somewhere, and you just can't imagine the elements actually bothering him. And I'm going to build one for Elijah, who didn't die, but was carried off in a chariot to heaven, and is probably okay on top of the mountain by himself. Why did he do this? Why did he say this? Well, back to that Old Testament stuff, remember? The... Jews had a festival, a feast, where they would go out and they would live in tents for a week. Why would they do that? To remind them that they were wandering the earth, that they did not have a permanent land, and to remind them of what God had done for them. And Peter since he has no other category to put this in, says, let's remember what God has done for us. Let's build a tent. Now, he also just wanted to do something. I mean, let's face it, what are you gonna do when your boss starts glowing and all of a sudden, the two most important people from Jewish history just show up? And I also think it's interesting We are not told that they have name tags on. (laughs) But somehow Peter knows who they are. That's Elijah and that's Moses. There's no question. He knew who they were. And so Peter, in his desire to do something, anything says, let me build y'all a tent. One for each of you. And we can just sit up here and enjoy ourselves, and all this rubbish about going down to Jerusalem will pass away. We won't have to do it. We won't have to suffer. We can just stay up here on the mountain, and people will come to see us because this is a wonderful experience. Now, this is... One of the origins of the, dis- the word a mountaintop experience. I mean, this is the standard by which all mountaintop experiences are judged. You can look at this, you can look at Moses going up on the mountain, whatever it is. Here it is. We talk. And we refer to certain times in our lives as mountaintop experiences where you feel really close to God. You feel the presence of God. It could be a church service. It could be up on a mountain. You go up on the mountain and you feel close to God. It could be a relationship that you have. Everything is working for that moment in time and you want that to stay. I want to feel like this forever. And that's what Peter wants. I want to be here with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Oh yeah, and James and John too. I want to be here forever. And you know what? I don't criticize Peter for wanting to do that. Except for the small problem that it isn't what God wanted him to do. It isn't what Jesus wanted him to do. To me, it's fascinating that whenever you do experience one of those mountaintop experiences, what usually comes after it? Depression. Let's get back to Elijah. Let's talk about real mountaintop experiences. Elijah on one side of the mountain, the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them on the other side. And they say, let's have a duel. I'll build an altar. You build an altar. I'll pray to my God. You pray to your God. We'll see which one lights the fire. So the prophets of Baal build their altar. They start wailing. They start cutting themselves, praying to their God. God, light the fire. Elijah starts mocking them. Maybe he's asleep. Yell louder. Nothing happens. Elijah tells the guys, go get some water. They pour buckets of water on his altar. Go get some more water. More buckets of water on the altar. And then he sits down and prays to God. God, show him who's boss. Loose translation. And fire comes down and consumes it all. The water, the wood, the sacrifice, the stones, consumes it all. And Elijah says, guys... Let's kill these prophets of Baal. And they do. And then Jezebel hears about it. Those were her prophets of Baal, by the way. And Jezebel says, Before this day's over, you're going to be toast. I'm going to kill you. And Elijah goes from this mountaintop experience to the depths of depression, just like that. And guess what? That's not that abnormal. Why? Because we were not meant to live on the mountaintop experience. But what the mountaintop experience does for us is give us a glimpse of who Jesus is. Why does this happen? Why does this story take place? What is the purpose of it? So that we will see who Jesus is. Who do the people say that I am? Well, you're the prophet, you're John the Baptist. Who do you think I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. Now, let me show you who I am. Whoosh. Here I am. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased; listen to him." As a general rule, when God interrupts your conversation, stop talking. It's just a general rule of life. You can write that one down. Peter says, "Jesus, If you want me to, I'll build some tents. And in the middle of his discussion, this cloud shows up and this voice repeats the exact message that he had given at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, John three witnesses to witness the event. They could stand up in a Jewish court and say, this is what happened. They have the three witnesses. Elijah, Moses, show up to bear witness of who Jesus is. But we need a third, and that third is God himself who shows up in the cloud and says, this is my son. Not just my son, but my son in whom I am well pleased. The guy that's doing what he ought to do. What was the mission of Jesus? It was to do the will of the Father. There will come a time when Jesus will say, if it's possible, let's go to plan B. But I'm not going to make that decision. I'm going to do whatever the Father tells me to do. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Here, we cut through all that opinion, and we have God saying who Jesus is. That's the answer. Why were they up on the mountain to bear witness of who Jesus is? You know, I've always speculated in my mind a little bit. When you have the baptism and John the Baptist says, no, I'm not gonna baptize you. You know, what's the purpose of it? And Jesus says, go ahead and do it, it needs to be done. And a voice says, this is my son. It doesn't really tell us how many people heard the voice. Okay, whether it was just Jesus who heard the voice whether it was John the Baptist and Jesus, I don't, it doesn't really tell us. Here it's very clear who heard. Peter, James, John. But don't stop there. Moses and Elijah heard also. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? A follower of Jesus Christ. Last week's lesson, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But where does all of that start when we appear before Jesus and we listen? Jesus, is telling the disciples, here's what it means to follow after me. Read all the Gospels, all four of them, and you'll hear what Jesus is telling the apostles to tell us what we need to know. Guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to pay attention to that. You see, you're a, well, let's make it easier. You're a 22-year-old, child, the son of somebody. And your parent comes and tells you, you ought to do this. Now you're 22 years old. You're not an infant. Now you know you're supposed to honor your parents, but you want to do something else. So I will use my parents' advice maybe as a suggestion. Maybe as a, yeah, I'll think about it. And so much of the time, that's what we do when we read the words of Jesus. That sounds like pretty good. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, okay, I'll think about that one. Now I won't do it over here because I really hate that person. But over here, I'll work at being a peacemaker. And that's the way we think. We pick and we choose. I like this one, I like this one. God is telling the apostles to tell you to Listen. But Jesus, you don't really understand. You don't really understand how bad that person is that you want me to love. And Jesus says, wait a minute. This group of guys over here is going to kill me. And I forgave them. This guy cut you off in traffic and you want to murder them. Isn't that the way our minds work? God, the Father, told us to listen to god the son and we don't get this till the book of acts but god the holy spirit brings to our recollection what god the son told us to do so we can obey god the father by following what god the son tells us to do it works this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. (sighs) But Jesus came and touched them, rise and have no fear. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Why did he tell them to rise? Let me give you a little hint. In the scripture, when God speaks, People get very reverential real quick. I think they had fallen on their knees. I think they had bowed their heads. I think they were scared to death. I mean, let's look at the progression here. Your boss is glowing, his two best friends who are dead just showed up, well, one of them is dead. One of them was carted off several thousand years ago. They just show up, okay, you've got that far, and you're ready to build a tent. And then God himself speaks. How do they know it was God? They knew it was God. Okay, you and I may struggle sometimes. Did God really say this to me? That's not one of the cases right here. They knew God had spoken to them. And they were scared to death. Throughout the scripture, when people really encountered God, God has to come tell them, calm down, it'll be okay. The angels have to tell the shepherds, fear not. Jesus has to tell the disciples, fear not. You have prophets who see God, and God says, whoa, don't be too scared. That is the human reaction to being in the presence of God. Nothing wrong with that. It's the natural reaction Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter. Remember, Peter was up on this mountain. Peter saw all of this. Peter did not forget. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. No, verse uh, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. What was his majesty? The fact that he taught real well? Well, that's good. He did teach real well. That's why God told us, listen to him. Today, so many people want to view that as the only thing we need to remember about Jesus. He was a really good teacher. He taught good stuff. Blessed are the peacemakers. Good stuff. Go do it. But is that all there was? Or was there more to his majesty? Well, we saw him crucified. We saw him raised from the dead. We saw him ascend into heaven. That was really cool. But on this day, on this mountain, we saw the majesty of Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We saw what happened. And Peter never forgot it. Just reading the rest of the passage just because it's so wonderful. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A lamp. We are sharing the gospel. We are a lamp. But the lamp was lit by the glory of Christ revealed to them which they never forgot a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. I am telling you people what I saw, and I'm not making this up. It was revealed to us. This is what I've seen and it changed Peter's life why is this scene even in the scripture so that you and I could read the testimony of Peter, James and John and say that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God we started this two weeks ago we started it with the observation that the most important question that you and I have to ever address is who do we say that Jesus is? Or who was he? He was a great teacher. He died because he ticked off the wrong people and we should follow his teachings. That's an answer. And that answer will will be reflected in your life. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, in whom God is well pleased, and the person who tells you that says, listen to him, it will radically change your life. Back over to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to read a few more verses and be done with this. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There'll come a time for you to tell people all about this. That time is not right now. Wait. When I am raised from the dead, people will go, how did he do that? And at that point, you'll be able to say, let me tell you what we saw. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Twice we've dealt with this topic of John the Baptist. They asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Maybe he didn't know. But God knew. When Herod had John the Baptist killed, he was scared because he thought that he was Elijah. And what is Jesus saying at this passage? What did the disciples finally figure out? Elijah did come, preparing the way for the Messiah. And he came in the person of John the Baptist. And guess what? They killed him. They killed him. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer too. It's like he's gone to the northern part to get away from everybody, to tell his disciples, this is what's going to happen and now he's gonna turn around and he's gonna head toward Jerusalem. He is gonna head down the path that God has laid out for him. And what are we supposed to do? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, but before all of that, listen. What do I listen to? We listen to his words in the scripture, and we listen as the Holy Spirit brings that recollection of those words and tells us, you know, at this point in time, there's where that scripture applies. Go do it. And that's what it means to follow after Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to listen. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.